you're not going to cut the part where I was just going, I suck, I suck, I suck, are you? Uh, no, I was going to put that in like five That's going to be like the, the bumper. <laughs> <laughs> Hey everybody, it's Microphones Madness. I'm Rodney, and over there is Steve. Phenomenon. <laughs> it's the third episode of our read-through of Dreams from the Witch House, Female Voices of Lovecraftian Horror, edited by Lynn Jemnick, published by Dark Regions Press. Uh, we are looking at stories numbers 11 through 15 today. They're not. They're not actually numbered in the book. We number them for our convenience. Yeah. So, what'd you think about this section, Steve? Um, it was short. <laughs> there are two really, really short stories. Yeah, yeah. There are a couple of really short stories. Um, a couple of slow burns, and uh, yeah, we'll just we'll jump right into it. Yeah, uh, first, I mean. Go ahead. We've, we've already given like the overviews and introductions, so just go right in. Yeah. Well, I mean, the first story on the list is Cthulhu's Mother by Kelda Critch. Uh, this is probably one of the shortest stories in the book. If yeah. you can really call it a story, it's more structured like a play. Yeah. Um, but this 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 story is played entirely for laughs. And it's something that we don't see a lot in in Lovecraftian fiction, uh, where people kind of uh, parody and and take make light of the subject matter. Right. It's it's kind of like that scene in Life of Brian, where the crowd is in front of uh, his his dwelling, and his mother comes out, and she's like, "He's been a very naughty boy." <laughs> exactly and and you know this was so short that really you know going into very much detail is going to give away a lot of the plot but effectively what you have is a bunch of cultists show up at a house we'd like to you know talk to you about our lord and savior cthulhu and you know it turns out to be cthulhu's house great he's still in bed <laughs> and he's, you know i can't get the lazy bum out of bed come on y'all let's uh what what are you guys doing here? She makes a uh, she makes a, uh, a nocturnal emissions joke. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and and yeah, I mean, it's, it's it was kind of nice to uh, to break it up and then to lead off with a with story that that you know uses humor. And and um, really, this is the first one that kind of does that. The rest of them have been. You know, to varying degrees of modeling and serious and actiony and adventury, but they've all been serious. Yes, they've all they've all played the Lovecraftian tropes straight. Um, and really, this is something I think is really is lacking in in the idea of mythos fiction is a little bit more of a tongue in cheek kind of approach, and and I, I think the old man deserves it. To be honest, I think he deserves a little bit of lampooning and ridicule. It would definitely uh, lighten the mood <laughs> amongst the the chosen a little bit if they would lighten the fuck up. Yeah, I mean, you know, there are character, you know, there are certain writers who make jokes within their stories. Uh, Scott Jones had a story mm -hmm. in Cthulhu Fatagan, which was. Uh, I found to be quite humorous because the narrator was this just a snark, snarky asshole. And even though it got gone kind of dark, it was still, there was still a little bit of tongue and cheekness to it. Yeah. Yeah. You find that every once in a while, like uh, when we did, um, uh, what was it? Uh, Urban temples of Cthulhu. You had the, the voting story. The, you had the voting story, but the one that the uh, editor contributed, um, you know, tried to be tongue in cheek. I right. don't know how successful right. it was, but that kind of poking a little fun at it. Right, that was there, and and you know, you don't get a lot of that. You get a lot of like, it's so fucking serious. Mm -hmm. That you're right. Every once in a while, somebody's just got a pants. H.P. Lovecraft. That's right. That's right. That's been my mission in life is to. 
Pants HP Lovecraft every chance you get. Knock his hat off. You get that um, in role-playing games. Like, you know, groups get giddy. They yeah, they get, get giddy. They, they, uh, they, start, they start doing a kind of a meta-commentary on it. And, and you get the Scooby-Doo fright reaction, particularly from our group. Right, but I think a lot of a lot of that behavior is frowned upon by the establishment. Lovecraft and hard I've used my creation in such a blasphemous way. So I'm I'm glad that I'm glad that that this Kelda Critch has a sense of humor about it. That's right, and and congrats means, to you for means, giving us a chuckle. Yeah, which means she's probably on Joshi's shit list or something. Yeah. He's going to uh, come by and admonish her with his fire pants. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, the next story on the list is still still has a little bit of a humor twist to it, not not so much, not so much a funny haha, but uh, but kind of a a uh, like <laughs> you gotta get like a that chuckle when someone gets their comeuppance. Yeah, it's kind of an ironic humor. Yeah, and that's uh, all gods great and small by uh, Karen Hewler. I hope I said that right. Yeah. It's hard to read my own handwriting. <laughs> um, yeah, this one, this one is a. I I, I kind of enjoyed it. And, um, this one had me screaming like, "You can hire me. I'll take care of it for you." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it also had this weird kind of. Just so you know, in real life, I'm an exterminator. That's right. He's a murderer <laughs> of vermin. That's it. I kill gods, apparently. Just, but only small ones. <laughs> That's true. All right, so yeah, basically, this story has kind of a, almost a, a weird political spin on it, too, because you have these two guys in the Amazonian rainforest. Uh, both of them have very different ideas of how you should interact with the locals. Yes, you have the, you have the I'm an American goddammit guy, mm-hmm. and then you have the guy who has semi-gone native, so to speak, and... Right. If he doesn't like the locals, he at least respects the locals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I mean, uh, it was uh, there was there was almost constant refrains when the two characters, excuse me, when the two characters would interact. Um, you had the character Bream or Brem, uh, who I think it's Bream, which is a kind okay. of a fish. So we call it Brem in Louisiana. Oh well, there you go. That's how we pronounce it. You know, um, at That's right. N- does not use Brim. Uh, Bream is down there. He's he's down there seeking his fortune, and I'm the way he decides to do it. You call him. You call him whatever. He's you call him asshole because that's really what Stanley. he is. Stanley. 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 So Stanley no, is down there and. He's trying to make his his life, and the way he wants to make his life is by slash and burn. I want to grow fucking, you know, widgets or something like that. Yeah, he, he, he is a onceler, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he's, he's had uh, failure after failure, and with each failure, he's driven further and further south. Yep, and, and really... He's driven further and further insane at being away from civilization. Ah, oh, there's bloody savages. Ah, yeah. Bugs everywhere. Fucking trees. I hate fucking trees. Just burn it all to the fucking ground. Yes, he's very overwhelmed by his circumstances. Yes. And is. his rea- his reaction is to try and take control of, of his environment and everything in it. Mm-hmm. Um, Regardless of the fact that the environment and everything in it is bigger, more powerful, and has been there a whole lot longer than he has. Right. But he is, he, he, he believes he represents the civilizing force of the world and that what he's doing is going to bring the light of 
modernity into this world of savages and insects and plants that just grow crazy and it's fucking raining all the time and you know what i want is cable television and blonde serving me cocktails in my beautiful jungle home overlooking the barren and burned landscape that i have created yeah, you get my coffee plantation he's definitely a parody of that pulp fiction well even beyond pulp fiction just fiction trope of the the white guy going in to to carve out a name for himself in the mm -hmm. savage areas of the world yeah he's he's also kind of a parody of capitalism as itself yeah, he's, he's he's ayn rand hero he's no, minus he's, uh, minus the what minus the trains yeah well you know she wrote a couple of books they weren't all trains it's just the one that everybody read she loves <laughs> trains that's all that's all it was to it she loves trains <laughs> and then i like trains wow <laughs> sdf if anybody yeah what uh he he be I guess be friends and he doesn't really befriend the guy. He just like hangs out with him because he's the only other white guy he knows. Right. Uh, fella named McClellan and McClellan. Yeah, McClellan. He seems like you're, he's an anthropologist. I mean, he is the guy who goes down there and knows what the natives are up to. He mm -hmm. isn't necessarily, pro or against he's more aloof yeah but he knows he knows their ways he knows their culture and he uh he basically ends up laughing at bream the entire time because bream's attempts are so impotent yeah you know i kind of i kind of uh as i was reading this i was picturing the two guys and Bream seemed to be played by the uh, the fellow that was like uh, George Costanza or maybe even Danny DeVito, that that sort of guy. Um, mm -hmm. and or uh, what's his name from, um, from Jurassic Park, who was also in Seinfeld? Oh, um, Newman. Yes, that guy. I keep I can't remember the actor's name, but uh, yeah, that's that sort of actor. And McClellan, I really is. Um, shoot, I can't now. My mind is complete. Jeff Bridges. Yeah, I can see that. It's like, hey man, just just let it go, man. I kind of pictured him as a little bit more malicious than a Jeff Bridges than more, a dude. More of a more of a um, Jeff Goldblum kind of. You know, if you keep doing this, I. Um, uh, I don't say I yeah. didn't warn you. Exactly. I, you know, he kind of, he kind of flip flops back and forth, but most of the time, you know, it, it seems like he's like different world, man, different ways. Yeah, but I think he's more like it's a different world, idiot. <laughs> I don't think he's like saying, "Dude, you got to roll the punches." I think he's saying, "You're a fucking idiot." Well, yeah, well, just entertaining thing around here because you continue to be an idiot. Right, and that's why I hang out with you. Um, no, it's even if you want to bring that big Lebowski comparison in, it, it's uh, Walter is Bream, <laughs> John Goodman's character. Walter is John Goodman, right? I, I'm also not a big big Lebowski fan. Yeah, you're not sorry much. No, but I really am not. They, they but the the book the story and that's the entertaining part is when the two characters are really interacting even though the story like mainly from uh from Bream's point of view uh and they have this odd couple kind of relationship uh, they're not friends they're but they're not really enemies either he's just kind of well, McClellan is just only, along for the ride he's like I want to be the only two they're on the, they are the only two white guys in the in the neighborhood right like in the country mm -hmm. and i think that you know you want that cultural comfort just that familiarity 
you know, no, no matter what, you, you, you're going to want that. Even if you're, um, you know, totally a pro-native guy or the biggest slash and burn guy, dickwad who wants to raise cattle and sell it to McDonald's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it seems, it seems like McClellan's more around for entertainment value. He could be. Um, I think, you know, these these aren't one-dimensional characters. You can have many motivations. But uh, Bream actually ends up pissing off a uh, local priestess because he um, shares Steve's love of vermin. (laughs) And I do love vermin. They keep the lights on. That's right. Now, I mean, he's he's having he's having the locals go out around his house, killing ants, putting them in bowls, and leaving them for him to see. That oh, look, we've killed millions of ants for you. Yeah. Now there's like like some type of little tyrannical white god. Bring me your offerings, and I shall pay. Liquor. I don't don't trust you. Show me the ants. That's right. Show me the ants. That's the thing. Is like I think that Bream has absolutely no respect for anything, anything that he's encountered. Maybe a grudging respect for McClellan, but even then, like his descriptions of McClellan are kind of like he's the only. It's the only game in town. Right. I don't even know why I hang out with this guy. Right. Of course, if you know. It's a crooked game. Why are you playing it? Because it's the only game in town. Right. And yeah, Bream and Bream gets his just desserts in the end. And it, I, Bream is so over the top, though, is what makes it humorous. As, as he yeah, says he, he wants just, to slash and burn everything, and he is in the process of doing it. Right. Yeah, and he. He. I mean, he is. To the point where he's poisoning the water around them, he's um, disturbing the the insects because of he's disrupting disrupting their um, their environment by mm-hmm. taking away their food, taking away their shelter, and poisoning their water. I mean, the, the first thing you learn not to digress. The first thing you learn in pest control is the easiest way to control pests is to control their food supply, their water supply, and their shelter. Right. And, and he's, he's done the opposite of that. He's, he's completely encroached on their environment without making any, um, any adjustments in his behavior. So, of course, they're going after his shit. Mm-hmm. And that's what they do. And there's right. a lot more and than them. Now, this this we also have to mention that this story doesn't involve like outer space gods or anything like that. It is, you know, probably the more most accurate depiction of a god that we have, and that is a type of uh, Gaia model or a pantheistic model where It, he's destroying the environment, and the environment decides to fight back. Yeah, I mean, just exactly what's going on today with global warming and shit. Mm-hmm. No. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, you fuck with that system, the system fucks back because it gets broken. Now, in this story, there's the question of whether this it's because he broke the system or because there's, like, an intelligence behind that, the, the great and small gods. Um, but you know, we'll, we'll give it the benefit of the doubt because it's in, in a Lovecraftian uh, collection. <laughs> I would say, I would say the answer is yes to both questions. I mean, it's, yeah, it's you know, it's really got a uh, an EC Comics vibe to yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, very much, very much. Um, I would say that this particular section of stories. Uh, leans more with the exception of Cthulhu's mother, which, you know, directly invokes the Lovecraftian mythos. 
the rest of the stories almost have kind of a Twilight Zone kind of vibe. Or yeah. Outer Limits or something like Night Gallery, something like that. Yeah. Um, rather than, you know, just going straight up for, you know, uh, it's got tentacles, it comes from the sea, blah, and that sort of thing. You know, it's funny that I'm looking at my notes um, from the story, and almost all of them is Breen is an asshole. He's he deserves whatever he's gonna get. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and yeah, I didn't feel sorry for for Bream in the slightest. And McClellan just kind of like, poof, gone. He's like, oh. no, and and it's great because he he, and that's the the EC Comics Twilight Zone kind of feel to it. Bream is the protagonist, but he is the outsider. He's the other in this story, not not the uh, the natives. I mean, they're not the filthy, unwashed masses that would be in a Lovecraft story. Right. It, it, they are. script on that. Yeah. They're the hero, so to speak. Of the story. And, Even though it's, it's not from their perspective. Because, you know, throughout this entire story, you, unless, unless you're like a huge Ayn Rand fan or, you know, in the Trump cabinet, the guy is unlikable oh absolutely oh absolutely and 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 just so single-minded toward toward the idea of destroying this area destroying not not taking a little bit of peace for himself and leaving the rest he wants to absolutely destroy everything yeah does it even say what his goal is i mean he has like some economic goal he has an economic goal, but to do so, he has to wipe the slate clean. It might be whatever grain for, for cattle. Right. I, I don't think the story was explicit in what his outcome is. He might have been wanting to grow coffee. He might have been wanting to grow a pot. Who knows? It, 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 and it doesn't but matter. I mean, I mean, he's burning the land with kerosene, which is running off into the river. I mean, he's just like... He, he literally is the onceler. I was expecting the Swanee Swans to leave and, you know, all that. Right. All that shit. Yeah, he's he's definitely he, he's definitely someone who wants to watch the whole boil burn. Right, he wants to burn it. Yeah, he wants to be the one to charge it. And he wants to watch it burn. And charge well, admission. He doesn't, want to, he doesn't want to actually burn it himself. He wants to pay other people to burn it. That's true. And he's like, look, I, I'm supporting the economy. I'm paying these people to do this. He says that at one point. Yeah, and and McClellan's the guy's like, but dude, you're burning down the whole fucking forest. You don't think there's going to be repercussions for that? <laughs> yeah. And 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 McClellan's response to the uh, the priestess that Brim Brim pissed off. It's like. You really expected this to go another way? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Breen definitely has that that American arrogance. Mm-hmm. That exceptionalism that, that his way is the right way and I'm gonna come down here and I'm gonna freedom the shit out of you. Yes, but the sun shines out of my ass. As does the flamethrower. Yes. So yeah, I mean, this story right here has just got layers and layers and layers of commentary. We could probably devote an entire show just to this story. Yeah. Um, but we it's have three one. more that we have to get through. So next up on our list is Dearest Daddy by Lois H. Gresh. This has to be, I mean, other than, you know, the story early in the in the anthology, uh, all our salt bottled hearts. Right. Uh, this has to be the most bleak story. Yeah, this is a this one's a tough one to 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 wrap your head around. Um, mainly because of the protagonist. I mean, just ugh. 
it's one of those things where you know this shit happens mm. and you don't want it to be a reality but it is right so, so um, you have, a, you have a, a young lady who is you know, she's in a horrible place she's surrounded by horrible people yeah she's like 11 young lady well she's telling the story like sometime in the future it seems right but but the the crux of the action is when she's like 11. Uh, i thought it was nine no maybe it's nine it's not a big difference yeah it's very 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 young yeah so this is at the period um after world war one mm-hmm. um, yeah prior to world war ii in france mm-hmm. And she and her father are street performers. Very, very poor street performers. Um, he's a contortionist. Say what? They're homeless. Yeah. Well, you would be poor if you're homeless. You know, that's, you know, you're not, you're not loaded with bucks if you're homeless. So they're that's poor. Um, he's a contortionist. She is a singer. Right many other functions and uh so what well i mean she she starts these other functions later in the story right well but you get the idea that that uh her father would sell it for a buck if he could Mm -hmm. oh absolutely yeah i mean he's like uh he's a shit sell her for a bottle of cheap gin yeah um, yeah, so so I mean, she's surrounded by these horrible people. She's in this hard relationship with her father. Uh, her mother uh, is supposedly dead and died in childbirth. Right, uh, a prostitute. Yes, uh, or you know, maybe maybe not. They called her a whore, mm-hmm. which could either mean she was literally a prostitute, or her father's a dick and calls women whores. And really, it could go either way. Because her father is a dick. That's true. Um, yeah, and it's like right on the cusp of, of World War II. Uh, the police and the, the gendarmes come in to uh, recruit the homeless and destitute for, you know, the infantry. And, you know, Daddy decides that he's going to draft the dodge the draft. And Can't do that with a nine-year-old girl tagging along. That's right. You'll only slow me down. So he sends her to a brothel. Doesn't even really send her to a brothel. He just kind of bounces and says, go here. Yeah, he'll take care of you. Right. And she starts working at the brothel, but she's not very good no, at she's it. Not very, she's not cut out for that kind of life. So the madame sends her to another place, a, a bar within the tunnels. Yeah, tunnels under the city. Yep, and then shit starts getting weird. Uh, there's a lot of, um, I'm supposing, uh, heroin or some such thing. Uh, yeah, I figure it was, it, they were they were keeping her drugged with heroin or whatever, yeah. Morphine, opiate of some sort. Right, and then plenty of liquor. Yeah, wine and a strange mushroom. They feed her a strange mushroom to find. Yes, in the um, caves. growing in the area of the caves because the best mushrooms grow in the caves, right? Um, now she, she she's also working as a prostitute mm-hmm. in uh, this this situation, and there's a lot of girls down there doing the same thing. These are kind of the uh, the rejects from the rest of the brothels, and up mm-hmm. here, this is really rock bottom, literally, and figured. Yeah. Um. And a lot of a lot of these girls are listless, um, sluggish, waxen skinned, um, dead eyes. Now, yeah, and and at first you think, oh, it's because their spirits been broken because they're in such awful circumstances. Mm-hmm. But then we find out there's a little bit more to it than that. Oh yes. And I, I think this one, this one more than any of the rest, 
well, no, the next one on the list is very Twilight Zoney. Uh, this one is is very strange. Like you said, it has kind of that EC Comics kind of feel, um, and yeah, it's it it becomes it becomes kind of very personal type of story rather than a than a cosmic horror. This this focuses more on despair. Yeah, and just aloneness in a. In a you have the complete horror of her circumstances where, you know, she's not leading the greatest life to begin with. Right. And it gets worse and worse to where, like, even though her father is, like, a complete and utter scumbag, she still has feelings for him because he is her father and she misses him. Mm-hmm. She's nine. Um, and she feels abandoned. Maybe not misses him, but she does feel abandoned. Right, right. There you she, go. She's she grows to she grows to a kind of um, you know sense of normalcy in her in her surroundings that, that you know she's had to pretty much pick up the pieces on her own, and she gets to a point where she is not necessarily happy but content and managing yeah, complacent. Right, and then her father comes back. Yeah. And it's it's horrible. Yeah. But she she manages that situation as well. She does. She does, but but the balance between the two situations doesn't work out well. Right. She kind of um casks of Amontadillo's her father. Yes. Um and and gives him the same concoction that the the other um, the other workers are getting as well. So like the, the wine, heroin, mushroom mix. After she beats him comatose. She breaks his legs and his arms. Yes. Anakin Skywalker is the motherfucker. Right. And yeah, deservedly so. At first, so, you know, she kind of gets her revenge, and then she's like, well, you know, you never loved me before. I'm going to make you love me. Right. And she, she Actually, she kind of goes off the deep end at that point. Well, yeah, at that point, she is the, quote-unquote, psycho killer, the monster mm-hmm. of the story um, in action, as opposed to motivation. But there's, like, tons of movies where you have, like, the misguided psycho mm-hmm. you know just like circumstances that made them snap and that's what's going on like you know kind of like norman bates or something right or or uh, misery yeah we we're like they've just gotten so far off the deep end that they can't even tell what they're doing is wrong and it's not like some crazy axe murderer supernatural axe murderer she's just a a Nine-year-old psychopath, right, right. Who's just basically trying to survive? Yeah, trying to survive and trying to create a little bit of happiness and, in a world that is pretty much shit. I mean, we're talking yeah. Don't get depression. Don't get, it, don't get me wrong, because I'm not saying that she is the antagonist at any point. Mm. Because I personally had all the sympathy for this character when she was breaking her father's legs and drugging him up. He deserved it. You know, in the context of this story, he deserved that. And I didn't feel like she was doing anything wrong while I was reading the story. Right. And also there is that the other element at play um, that is never explained, never really touched on, but it's like an influence over the latter events of the story. Um, that's that's kind of glossed over in dialogue, and you know it's there. Yeah, but you don't know exactly what's going on. And, right. Well, and that's because kind of have, a neat little trick. Right, because none of the the characters in the story really know what's going on with that. And we've had stories like that before, where the perspective mm-hmm. is is so narrow mm-hmm. that any of the supernatural or freaky elements are unexplained because the characters don't know what, what, what they are. Right. 
exactly. They they don't know what they are. Um, they are not always entirely aware that these elements are in play. Um, right. You know, they're they're described. You know, these these things that we as the reader catch because it's that's what kind of story it is. That's the type of element that we're expecting to have. And right. And and in this story, they're very skillfully. Um, the the dribs and drabs are skillfully handed out to you, mm-hmm. so you don't get a big information dump. You get like dribs and drabs organically in the story. Mm-hmm. You know, a word that keeps on being repeated in the narrative, that kind of thing. Right, and and a feeling, and just you know, and then you get oh, there's something down there that's not right. And it's like, yeah, you know, we figured this out like three pages ago, right? And and that's 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 what it is. The the reader has more information about what's what's actually transpiring than our narrator does, right? And that's you know, honestly, that's also the mark of a weird tale, right there. Mm-hmm. Is the reader having access to more information than the protagonist does? Um, just in this case. It's not a blatant dispensation of knowledge. You kind of have to pay attention and put two and two together. Right. There is no there is no the window, the window, that I moment right. in this story. And so it's 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 more of a it's more kind of a gentle ending. Yeah, it's one of those endings where you know, usually we plow through these stories. And I kinda had to put the put it down to uh, you know, let it sink in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let it let it all wash over you. Because sometimes that's what you have to do, and that's one of the reasons why we're breaking this into four parts. Yeah, is to make it a little bit more digestible, to give us a little bit more time to let these stories sink in. Right. So we can make even bigger fools of ourselves. That's right. Because we're the most subtle surrealistic comedy on the internet. That's right. You don't know that you've been played. The next story on the list is Eye of the Beholder by Nancy Kilpatrick. This totally was Twilight Zone. (laughs) Yeah, this absolutely. This had a very, very Twilight Zone. Um, I thought it was going to go in in a direction, and it went in a kind of, sort of direction, but it... It took and kicked it up. Uh, my note was uh, from really normal to what the f- pages. <laughs> yeah, and, and it did. I mean, I was like, okay, what the hell's going on here? I was reading this story, and you know, it's a group of a group of women sitting around. Um, trying to chide and peer pressure uh, the narrator or the the point of view character into going to see a dermatologist to to get her face fixed. You know, it's like... Right, because she she was getting on an edge and she had to catch a man. That's right. And, you know, that's what these men like. And it was a, a... It's funny because it started out like the shallow end of the pool. It was like all these eye-rolling people. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I, I know these people exist, and I know I've probably been one and at various points, but, right. you know, it, it's so blatant here where they're like, no, you... <laughs> uh, you're, it's, do you want to die single? Right. Do you childless? Want to, do you want to be an old maid, single and childless? Baby, put on some eyeshadow and, and you could drop ten pounds. You could drop ten pounds. Get your face fixed. Get some Botox up in there. Some collagen injections. You know. Right. You know, get an overhaul. Catch yourself a rich man. That way, if you know, if you don't like him, you can divorce him and take half his shit. Yeah, I mean, it's just like total Beverly Hills housewives kind of shit. Yeah, it's it's very cynical. 
and she finally caves to this this peer pressure to to do these things. She gives into the peer pressure and goes to visit the doctor, Doctor Todd. Doctor Todd with one D. With one D, and Doctor Todd is a strange bird of sorts. Yeah, it's not really a bird though. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> um, but. But she starts doing the, th- the the stuff, and oh, you're looking great! You're looking fantastic. Why don't you hit on the your dermatologist? Now you got to say that she was specifically said no surgery. Right. She's exactly. just going there for like superficial treatments, for Botox, flake, you know, uh, yeah. exfoliation, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Right. And uh, she goes twice a month for a year. Mm-hmm. Let, let that sink in. Twice a month for a year. Now, I get my hair cut maybe twice a year. I know uh, Ryan will go occasionally to get nails or whatever done. Mm-hmm. She does not go anywhere. Nobody goes anywhere twice a month for a year. Outside of the cat's mother in Brazil. Right. Well, I'm sure some people do, you know, but I think that occurs at social strata well above ours. Uh, Maybe. Because, you know, the dermatologist twice a month for a year, that's got to be expensive. I'm sure your insurance does not cover Botox injections and exfoliation. Well, mine doesn't, but I guess in that social strata, it might. That's true. And so her friends decide to try to hook her up with the dermatologist. Yeah. Not sure why. Yeah, it's just weird. I mean, other than it's the only man, apparently, this, this character sees regularly, and they say, well, you know... You're paying him a lot of money. He's very busy. He's a doctor. He's a doctor. Um, Then you can take half his shit. Yeah, I guess. I'm not not sure. There's there's a few uh, leaps in this story to to move the plot along to the next thing that, you know, may make perfect sense to, to someone. It doesn't always make complete sense to me. Um, I, I guess you, you have to have a suspension of disbelief that people can really be this, this shallow. Yeah, I, I suppose. Um, yeah, and, and we have a really awkward uh, dinner date with the doctor and, and everyone. And you know, our, our main character, is uh, she's trying to get into it. Yeah, I mean, she, like, for someone who's, like, completely don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, she's very much a willing participant. Mm-hmm. Now, it's, of course, probably does not hinder her at all that she is continually getting drunk through this uh, this dinner date. Right. As is the doctor, apparently. And, and, and well, she does make it a point to say over the course of the year that uh, Dr. Todd has grown less uh, grotesque than he was when she first met him. Mm-hmm. So I, I, she plants the seed in there that that uh, it could be a possibility. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, familiarity could, could bring strange bonds, you know? Yep, sure can. What are you gonna do? Exactly. She, she tries. She, she tries and tries and tries, but uh, he's not. He's not biting. Mm-hmm. He's a a cold fish. One last ditch effort. She walks him out to the car, and then all goes black. Yeah. And she wakes up. 
And that's when the real horror begins. Yes. And <laughs> and really and really to discuss to discuss that part of it, the actual horror aspect of the story, really is gonna blow too much of what's going on here. Right. I mean, aside from the fact that like the way everybody's behaving is kind of horrific. <laughs> right. Right. There's there's that aspect, but then there's the, the There's the actual horror. In the story, and yeah, I'm. She she makes the one thing that struck me toward the end of the story, without trying to give away the the big reveal, um, is that she comes to a real a certain realization about the nature of Doctor Todd, and I'm not sure how that comes to be. Uh, you know this this character has a certain degree of knowledge, but I think I think the realization is a bit of a a bit of a jump. Uh, and it kind of it kind of shakes you a little. It, well, it shook me a little bit as I was reading. You know, kind of. There's always that one point in a story that that does kind of threaten to kick you out of the narrative and the suspension of disbelief. Right. Now, I will say that the biology, um, where they're talking about the Uthaca mm-hmm. and uh, viviparous, viviparous, however you pronounce that, mm-hmm. is fairly like accurate um, from experience. And Uthaca, well, you can look it up. I'll tell you later, but you can. For the rest of you, you can look it up because it gives too much away. Right. Um, yeah, but yeah, this definitely had the strongest Twilight Zone kind of vibe. And yeah, it was it was a really strange and weird sort of story. Yeah. And and yeah, it was kind of a it it, it followed that 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 Twilight Zone format. Um to to almost to a T where you have it's it's very very normal almost then, too normal almost too normal um almost to a point where i was thinking that maybe this was written for a different project and then the rest was kind of added in but maybe not right um yeah. you know i'm i'm it, i write and and i know i have you know scores scores of things in a folder that you know I start on, and you know it, ne- it doesn't go anywhere, right? And you know I know that one of the tools is usually you get a call for a submission or something like that, and then you go back through that and you say, well, maybe I have something already started that I can, I can work. You know, I, can I can work the theme and, into this, right? Yeah, work the theme into it, and maybe that's what I'm missing is I I just needed that that theme, that thematic hook to help right. me out. And you know, and that would be fine. I, I yeah, personally, you, like you said, it I, goes, it's very, it's almost too normal, and then it kind of prog- slowly gets weird, and then it just goes completely batshit crazy. Yeah, I personally, um, I like that Richard Matheson kind of twist story like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I. I I love reading that stuff, right? And and watching the Twilight Zone and stuff like that because it's not like it, it doesn't go so depressingly over the top like you'll get in a in a lot of cosmic horror, right? This this it's, story is definitely not as bleak as uh, as Dearest Daddy, the, right? The, the story preceding it, um, yeah, and. And then again, Dearest Daddy could appear in a collection of non-horror stories. Yeah, it could. I mean, could, I mean, because that, I mean, that story had enough. Um, I, I don't want to say lightness, but enough. Uh, the 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 horror aspect of it was reined in and really subtle. Mm-hmm. A quiet kind of horror. And you could put that in in a collection of existentialist French stories. Mm-hmm. You know, the Jean, Jean Sartre um, cycle, <laughs> or whatever. 
Yeah, and that's <laughs> and that with the exception of Cthulhu's mother, uh, all of these stories are flexible in their in their genre. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. And and you can use them in in a variety of settings. Um, and you know, in a variety of themes, and there would just be that unsettling little thing in there that that really kind of. Well, this a, one has an unsettling big thing, but I mean, it, but it's still not tentacles raining down from a bloody sky. Right, cosmic deities. Oh my God! Oh, it's the, it's what was spoken of in the prophecies right. of Athen. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> the language of the elder things has no vowels at all. It does not. <laughs> yeah, so the final story we're going to talk about this evening is Down at the Bottom of Everything by E.R. Knightsbridge. Um, this one gets right to the fucking point. Oh, yeah. You're just there. Getting attacked and, by garbage monsters. Yep. Yeah. Pretty much. This 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 story is is you know, because it's a an aquatic themed story, you know, the best analogy is you're on the bottom of the ocean, you scream, and then there's just this bubble that rises up to the surface and then pop and done. Uh, yeah, and it's really short, and that's exactly what it's like. Um, you have a a uh, scientist mm-hmm. who is going to a floating island of garbage. Yep. To study the floating island of garbage. Why? Right. Examine the environmental impact. Yes. And we we pick up. I mean, the story begins with the. Um, She's in the garbage. Uh, no, it starts She's with in the bathtub. Oh right, right, right. Then she talks about. The garbage. Right. It's it's one of those. Right. You won't believe how I got this way, but I'm about to tell you. Right. Yeah, because she's in the bathtub. Is it a girl? I can't even. I guess it doesn't really matter. Yeah, it's a it's a first person narration. I believe a wife is discussed, but that doesn't mean anything these days. Right. Uh, well, um, either way, it doesn't matter. She, right. She's in the bathroom and she takes all of her baths full mm-hmm. where she ha- she has to have her her head under the water and she does this because if she doesn't do it that way she'll never be able to go near water at all right. because of the horrific experience in the trash island mm-hmm. and we transition immediately to that experience and um we find out that it's not necessarily just trash down there in the deep and dark. No. But trash is the perfect camouflage for it. Mm-hmm. Trash is the perfect camouflage. Um, there's also a hallucinatory sequence. Right. Well, that's the thing. It's like everything that happens to her. Mm-hmm. Could it could be because she got like wrapped up in the trash and got poked by a hypodermic needle, or it could be the thing that's lurking down there that um, is so good at camouflage that even its its uh, predation is based upon you know, the model of trash. Mm-hmm. Kind of like a Dianoga from Star Wars lives in the garbage compactor. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's this is this is the shut them all down. <laughs> yeah, shut down all the garbage masters on the detention level. Um, but this is the in, unreliable narrator uh, to a T because we get both plausible and fantastical explanations of what's going on. Right. Well, I mean, think about it. You you go to this floating. And it's it's huge. It's not like a little bit of trash. It's huge because the currents take all the shit that gets dumped into the into the ocean and makes these huge isle, islands of floating trash. Right. That was a real gazette. <laughs> and uh, 
so you go there and you 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 get disoriented in the water mm-hmm. because you're surrounded by trash and you start panicking you start thrashing around you might get poked by an errant um you know tin can or something right or or a hypodermic needle that ended up there or whatever and you know it could that's a traumatic experience in and of itself mm-hmm. but add to the fact that you're so disoriented that you think you see movement that is independent of the trash correct you could be, it's a freaky thing and and movement that seems to also denote intelligence as well right and that's is that, that your mind even freakier right. right is that your mind doing that to you because you're panicking underneath a trash a floating trash pile or is there like some creature in the trash right that looks like trash could it is it trash is it not trash are they hallucinating uh you know exactly were they shot full of drugs under the water and they're just having this weird um psychedelic experience down under you there's no i you, you don't know and then the story's over yeah, the big clue is this mole. She has like a movable mole. Mm-hmm. That yeah, I, I that I didn't get, and I apologize to uh, Ms. Knightsbridge. I, I believe that that was also that came in as part of the the uh, the really psychedelic part. It was yeah, but it was implied that she had gotten that she had had that mole prior. Mm-hmm. On the, and on then the it back. started acting, yeah, and it started moving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so who knows? I, I mean, what's going on with this, this woman? She's like, you know. A third type of weird element in there, you know. Right. It's, it, now it's like, the mole, is the mole activated by what's going on, or is it just more, like, craziness because you're panicking? It's, it's, hard, it's hard to tell. Is the mole the creature itself? Right. You know that's that sort of thing, and yeah, there's a there's several questions that are kind of left hanging, and that's fine. And yeah, it kind of leaves you with that uh, whoa, that yeah. was odd kind of kind of feeling at the end. I mean, it kind of gets all summed up in this one paragraph. It's very short. She goes, "My breathing." The plastic bag over my head hovered around me like a determined jellyfish and then began forcing itself into my mouth, burrowing down my esophagus. Mm-hmm. Is plastic it a bag? Is it a jellyfish? Is it a plastic bag? Is it something worse? Yeah, who knows? Right, right. Because, you know, she it's clearly like, doesn't because she's taking these fucking power baths. The, um,. <laughs> You know, the description of that, you know, could it could be a plastic bag. She, the character's under the water, gasping, starts gasping for air, and of course, when you do that, you're sucked the damn bag in, right? And it's going to feel kind of like a foot because that that bag is going to be full of water as you suck it in. Yeah, I mean, you get reading this the story, and this is this one's really short too. Mm-hmm. You get that claustrophobic feeling just from the prose. Mm-hmm. And and it's interesting to get a claustrophobic feeling in something like the ocean, which is so big. It's it's like a it's like being claustrophobic inside of an airplane because you're you're up in the air. There's just it's just this big expanse, same as the ocean. It's just a big expanse of blue, but it's it's fluid, so it's pressing down on you. It's also dark, and right. It's all blue. Well, and then it's it's foreign. You cannot survive underwater in the ocean for more than the amount of time you can hold your breath. Right, or or however much air you have in your scuba tank. Right. So I mean, it, it's a it's it's a hostile environment. Mm-hmm. So you, yeah, you're going to be claustrophobic because it's all closing in on you. You are your own. You are your spaceship. Mm-hmm. And that does it for this uh, section of Dreams from the Witch House. Uh, yeah. Next week will be the final section. 
we're in the home stretch. So check it out then. And until then, say good night, Stephen. Good night, Stephen. All right. I am an astronomical phenomenon. You are apparently. See you later.